Good morning. This is, this is amazing. I feel like I'm preaching in a cave. This is, it was a fantastic week. An amazing, amazing week. And um, it's fun to, you know, to come in on a, on, a, uh, on a Monday morning and see the place just full of, of 100 plus kids and all the volunteers and all the activity. And, you know, to have that sustained over five days and kids being loved on and taught and um, the whole community, I think, is touched by a vacation Bible school like, like that. Um, we have some amazing folks here who pull that off. And you got to know that a Christian, Kristen Cerniati is a superstar. She really is. And, yeah. And she's, I think she's with the kids right now, right? So that's what she's doing. But, um, so she's missing this. She makes a lot of sacrifices for, for her work and for her ministry. And when you see her um, the next minutes, hours, days, make sure that you encourage her and, and tell her that she's doing a great job, because she really is. You know, when you want to go somewhere, direction is really, really important. I learned this in my early days of my boating experience with my family. We had a boat. Our family had a boat. I think there's a picture of it. It was the Triple M. And it uh, doesn't look like that anymore. It's still, actually, it's, I think it's still on, uh, they moved it over to Lake uh, Coeur d'Alene in Idaho. Uh, it's on the lake over there. But it was, uh, it was a boat. The, uh, I think the keel was laid in 1939. And um, that was our family boat. And we would we'd, we'd go out on, on this. Um, and we would cross large bodies of water, the Juan de Fuca and Georgia Straits. We navigated across those, um, going north to the Canadian Gulf Islands. It was it, this time of year. The end of July always reminds me of those days, because it was about it was about the first of August usually that all ten of us. My seven siblings and my mom and dad, we'd all get on that boat and we would head north for about three weeks. And uh, this involved crossing those two large bodies of water. I don't know if you've ever been out in the middle of the strait. Um, sometimes it was windy out there and the waves were really, really big and it was rough. We'd batten down the hatches and we'd hang on as we rocked and bumped our way across the water. And then there were several times when there was really thick fog. And we would venture out, we'd leave Port Townsend, or we'd leave Victoria to go across one of those two straits. And we knew the compass heading, but you, we couldn't even see 50 yards in front of the bow. And if you can imagine... Uh, kids up there on the, on, the, on the bow. Some of us would sit on the bow or lean against those windows in the front and we'd watch the water. And uh, if there was something in the water, like a log or, you know, anything, we'd yell at a dad, you know, turn, turn, because you know, it was just, we'd go slowly across those straight. Actually, this boat always went slow. 
<laughs> but we, we would, you know, we'd kind of creep across the straits in the fog. We'd be sounding our horn at regular intervals. And we'd watch the compass very, very closely. When you travel a number of miles, like going across the straits, just a few degrees on the compass can make a huge difference. You can end up somewhere completely different if you're just a couple degrees off. Direction is really important. And you know, marine navigation is an excellent metaphor for life. We're all headed somewhere. At some point, we've made choices. We took a certain direction. It may mean a vocational choice. It may mean a philosophy, a political view, a theological position. It may be a choice of how to raise your kids. It's an attitude maybe about someone or some group of people. Any of these could be compared to a course or a heading. It's where you're going in life, your stance, it's your position as you navigate your journey of life. You have a course. And, and, and of course, we, we have these as groups as well. We, our church is going a certain direction. The decorations on this stage are indications of, of a course that we're on as a church. Our direction includes putting kids' ministry really high on our priority list. We go to great lengths to reach kids and reach families as a church. We've been doing this really for over 50 years in this place. It's been a part of who Mountain View is. This is our course. It's a choice. It's our, it's our heading as in our journey as a church. But here's the question. What if we're off? What happens? Here's something we can learn from the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is actively guiding the church, giving us direction, if we're willing to hear it. The Holy Spirit is giving direction keeping us on course, reminding us of true north, keeping us on track. One of the most delightful stories in the Bible you have just heard, and it illustrates this really well, Acts chapter 10. So Luke tells the story. Luke's the writer of Acts, and it's, it's very dramatic. Did you get that? It, it's like a, many good dramas. It, it actually takes the shape of three acts. Act 1 begins with Cornelius. Now, we need to note right away that Cornelius' very presence in this book is extraordinary. He is a Roman centurion. The fact that an officer in the occupying Roman army would be a man of faith is worth noting all in itself. 
And Luke tells us that Cornelius was stationed at Caesarea, which is an oceanside city, and it's the center of the Roman activity in Israel. It is aptly named, of course, Caesarea, Caesarea. So the Romans would, would uh, we think of the Romans and all the action in the New Testament being in Jerusalem. But for the, from the Roman perspective, it wasn't. Jerusalem wasn't the main thing. Caesarea was the main place. They would go to Jerusalem when they needed to, and uh, they would, like for festivals and special occasions. I've been to Caesarea, though, and it was absolutely the center of their operations. There's still amazing ruins there from the Roman period, including a, a large hippodrome where you could ride chariots in a, in a big oval, just giant area that was made for that. There's, a, there's a, an arena, which kind of looks like half of a coliseum, where they would have plays and different things that would happen. There's a Roman temple still there, ruins of a Roman temple. There's the aqueduct, which comes right down the coast, but it... Um, when they built it, it went from Caesarea all the way to the foot of Mount Carmel, which is 10 kilometers away. So this giant arched canal, elevated canal, that would carry fresh water into Caesarea. So Caesarea was a, was a big deal. Now the fact that Cornelius was stationed as an officer in Caesarea is evidence that he was not only a Roman officer, but also a successful one. As I said, Caesarea was an important seaport. It was, it was vital in the supply chain that made sure that the products from the east, um, especially grain, uh, made it from the east to the, and they reached the west to Europe and, and Rome itself. So the, the Romans had a vested interest in making sure that Caesarea was secure and peaceful and that the supply chain was open, so they guarded it very carefully. So here's the first thing to notice about what the writer is doing here in, in Acts chapter 10. Notice Cornelius is a powerful, successful Roman, hear that, Gentile man, who was also, Luke says, what? What was he? It says it right in the text. Anybody have it open still? He was a devout man of God, yes. He's what's called a God-fearer. And this was a special designation for those who converted from whatever they believed before to being in agreement with Judaism. Gentiles who converted to Judaism. They became Jews. And not only that, but Cornelius was a man of prayer, serious prayer. Luke tells us that he prayed constantly. He was a good guy. Now, we need to just stop here and consider what it would have been like to read this as a contemporary of Luke's. A disciple, let's say you're a disciple between the years 60 and 100. We don't know exactly when Luke um, wrote Acts. But during a time when the Roman Empire was large and in charge, they kept the peace. They did it by making people afraid. They did it with brutality. They did it with force. We've seen that. 
We saw that in the death of Jesus. We'll see Peter himself, the Apostle Paul. These people met a very, uh, they, they became martyrs because the Romans killed them. And the centurion was a symbol of that, of that force, of that brutality, an officer. Roughly equivalent maybe to a captain in our army, but centurions were, they could, they could be even more powerful than that. They probably commanded about 100 people, thus the name century, centurion, maybe 200, and they could be very, very powerful. So, to see the words centurion and devout and constant prayer in the same context would have just blown our minds as if we, if we were the first readers of this book. And then to read that he had a vision of an angel saying his name and responding to his prayers with instructions to send men up the coast, 30 miles, to Joppa, this is nothing short of incredible. So you've you got to just notice that right off the back as, you, as you're reading this story. This is just really amazing. So there's Act 1. And as a first reader, your attention would have been piqued right away. I mean, this little play is already a page burner. Act one. Act two. Cornelius sends three men to find Simon Peter in Joppa. Now, it's now the next day, and Peter is in Joppa. Now, we need to just pause for a moment and notice something here that is more than a coincidence. Where is Peter? Joppa. What else in your memory of the Bible, what else happened in Joppa? Who else went to Joppa? Somebody tell me. Think Old Testament. Who? Jonah, absolutely. Jonah went to Joppa. Jonah used Joppa as a place of departure to run away from God's mission for him. That mission involved preaching to Nineveh, a Gentile city. Joppa is where Jonah headed the wrong direction. Notice that. Okay? That's important, I think. And Luke just is, is just kind of naming these things, and you know, I think he knows what he's doing. Now, Peter is on the roof of a house. He's the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa. He too has vision. Actually, he falls into a trance, Luke says, because he's hungry. You ever fallen into a trance because you're hungry? His vision was really, really wild. It's a vision of a, of a sheet, or as N.T. Wright calls it, a sail. Seems appropriate. Maybe that it's a sail, given the fact that he's in Joppa, which is a seaport. And the sail is lowered down by the four corners. So it's a square sail. Sails in those days were square. We think triangle, but they were square. So it's lowered down by the four corners, and there were all kinds of creatures on the sail. Animals, birds, reptiles, any animal you can think of. So cows. Sheep, elk, deer, lizards, seagulls. I mean, they're all there. 
Okay? Some of them kosher, some of them not kosher. They're all on the sheet, okay? So this whole thing happens, and a voice says, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, I think we just need to say, this is really weird. I mean, isn't it? This is just kind of bizarre. I mean, you, this is his vision. It's okay to say that about something that's in the Bible. You know, this is weird. You know, it's a bizarre vision. And I don't know, maybe this is reflective of how hungry the poor guy really was. You know, that he's, he's seeing food on a, on a sale. I don't know. We don't know. But holy cow. And Peter must have felt the same way. Yeah. Peter must have felt the same way, I think, because his response is, is pretty fervent. It's a strong statement. He says, no way, Lord. <laughs> Which is, you know, you know what the word Lord means? You know, it's somebody in charge. Um, it's a funny thing that he says. He's got to be kind of disoriented because that's like going to your boss and, and saying, um, you know this thing you just asked me to do? I'm not going to do it. You know, the next thing you're going to be doing is clearing out your desk. But it's, you know, so he says, no way, Lord, or may it never be, Lord. I've never even tasted food that isn't kosher. I, I wouldn't do that. This, you know, literally he says it's unclean and profane. So this whole thing happens three times as if to drive home the point to Peter he wasn't imagining this. It, it, it wasn't a fluke. But that God was telling him something unmistakable. The whole thing happens three times. The sheet comes down three times. The voice says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Three times he says, no way, Lord. Three times. Now, there is an important phrase here, though, that we need to highlight. It's verse 15. The voice he hears is this. The words from the voice are these. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Or as is translated in the message from Eugene Peterson, the sentence I took for our title today, when God says it's okay, it's okay. God is saying to Peter, I call them clean. So guess what? They're clean. Don't say otherwise. Now, Peter is just beginning, I think, to recover a little from this. He's still scratching his head. Maybe he's thinking, what in the world was that all about when the three guys from Caesarea show up? See how dramatic this is? The timing is just perfect. You know, he has this vision three times, and then he's going, and then knock, knock, knock at the door downstairs. It's perfect. You could do a television show of this. These are Cornelius's three men. They show up right then, and they're, they're knocking on the door, and the Holy Spirit speaks again to Peter and says, go down, talk to them, go with them. So he does that. He um, and he goes down. They explain why they're there. They're sent by a centurion, no less. And I'm, I'm sure Peter is just like, what? A centurion sent you? And then Peter invites them in. He gives them lodging. He basically makes them feel at home. I'm assuming 
I would hope for Peter's sake they had something to eat. And uh, I would have loved to hear their conversation around the table. You say his name was Cornelius? He's a centurion? And he prays? And they tell him probably over and over again, and he's telling them what's going on. So, end of Act 2. Act 3, the next day, off they go back to Caesarea, to Cornelius. And Cornelius is ready for them. In fact, he has asked his friends and family over because he senses that this is going to be a big day. And, and when Peter and the three guys show up, finally, Cornelius is so excited, he jumps up to greet him, and then he ends up on his face before Peter and worships him. He worships Peter, which is just really funny to me. I just, you know, I mean, we need to stop here and just take this in. I mean, you can't, you couldn't write stuff like this. It's, Peter is a Galilean fisherman. Cornelius is a centurion. You know, this is like a successful Wall Street businessman getting up from his desk, going down onto the street, and bowing down before a panhandler. This is the, I mean, this is like Ken Griffey Jr. bowing down and worshiping a six-year-old t-ball player. This is really bizarre. I mean, and Peter says to him, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we're both human. Get up. That, that isn't right. Don't worship me. And then they begin to talk. And we have some of what was said here between Peter and Cornelius. Peter points out that his very presence with them is highly irregular He's basically saying, yeah, this is a house full of Gentiles. You know, we Jews don't normally do this kind of thing, but here I am. He's there because of the rooftop vision he had in Joppa. He tells them about that. He uses the very words he heard. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or clean. Notice that he has applied what he has heard. He actually altered the words. Because the words he heard were anything profane. But he now says any one profane. That's really interesting to me. Peter has not only changed direction and what he's willing to do, but he has expanded and he has developed it. It's not just about food. Now it's about people. Hold on to that. So Peter asked, he asked then Cornelius to tell him why he sent for him. And basically, Cornelius responds by saying that the Holy Spirit told him to, you know, go get Peter, Simon Peter. And Cornelius is apparently thinking Peter is going to say something to him. You're going to say something. That's why you're here. I kind of wonder if Peter thought, uh, wow, what am I supposed to say? You ever felt like that? I remember uh, one, of the, one of our missionary friends in Africa, we were visiting a village, and uh, she turned to me and said, okay, Pastor John, why don't you talk to these people? <laughs> I was like, oh, about, you know, what, what am I supposed to say? I, you know, was, I wasn't thinking that I was going to talk right at that moment. So Peter asks, Peter is asked to say something, and, and 
I'm guessing maybe that Peter might have thought, what am I supposed to say it for just a second? But then probably immediately went, ah. His whole life has been about one thing ever since Jesus died and was raised and the whole Pentecost experience. It's all about the good news of Jesus Christ. But as he's beginning, he points out, and this is verses 34 and 35 of chapter 10, he points out that he understands something, and this, this is new for him. He says, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Anyone. This is new for Peter. And then he shared with them about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection story of the gospel. The story is not over. The most amazing thing happens. While Peter is still talking, the Holy Spirit fell upon everyone who was listening. They started speaking in tongues. Just, just the way it happened at Pentecost. I love this. It, it, Peter wasn't finished with his speech, and the, but the Holy Spirit didn't wait. <laughs> this is so often the case. You know, the Holy Spirit can use what we say, but it's not we who are in control. But here's the next thing. The circumcised believers... Translate that, the ethnic Jewish background Christians who are on the scene. Okay? You know who they are? People like Peter. People who were ethnically Jewish <clears throat> had become Christian. Those people were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. This blows their mind. Do you get this? You get that? This is them saying, wait, you mean them? Uh, this is for them? They're not part of the group. They aren't Jews. They don't keep the rules. They aren't card-carrying members of the club. Them? They're eligible for this? And Peter's response was evidence that he had indeed changed direction. He says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have just received the Holy Spirit as we have? So, they baptized him. There's so many parts of this drama that were leading up to this point of the baptism. Do you see this? The devout Roman Gentile centurion enemy 
of course, the vision and, and God calling non-kosher food clean. The weird beginning of the relationship between Peter and Cornelius. Peter expanding his vision and developing it. All of this is setting us up to see the need for this new direction for the church. This new Holy Spirit inspired, inspired course. Now, if we who also know the stories of the gospel, we know that Jesus was already headed this direction, right? You remember Jesus' interaction with the centurion himself, where he heals someone, he heals the centurion's, is it servant or child? One of them. He lists a Samaritan as a good person in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He talks to a Samaritan woman. Jesus was already going this direction. So it's not completely new, but it's new for the early church. Folks, as we, as we navigate through life, we have attitudes toward people. We all have attitudes toward people. It may be one person. Someone close to you. Someone who frustrates you. Someone in your family. Maybe it's your mother. Maybe it's your father. Might be a sibling, may even be your spouse. Are you willing to pray that they will receive God's love? Are you willing to pray that they'll receive a blessing from the Holy Spirit? Are they eligible? Are you willing to be a part of that blessing? Are you willing to allow God to change your heart? Your attitude toward that person? What's your course? Your heading in terms of this? I think about our course as a congregation. Mountain View. Who's God calling us to serve? Do we sometimes dismiss the possibilities because we assume that God would never want us to reach them, to bless them, the homeless, the addicted, refugees, prisoners, those who make different choices than we do in terms of lifestyle, in terms of sexual orientation? Are they eligible for a blessing from God? Be careful. You may be calling them unclean or profane when God is saying something completely different about them. Be careful. What about our heading as a nation? Now, I know I'm in shark-infested waters this time of year. 
this year in particular, I think, to talk about this on Sunday mornings. I know. But I also feel the need to say that as a disciple of Jesus, I am alarmed by what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing when it comes to our policies about the whole, whole groups of people who are different than us. Who believe different than us. Who look different than us. Yeah, I want to be safe too. I want to live in a world where we don't have to worry about being attacked. I want that. We all do. But when we begin to make policy decisions based on skin color and religious background, we are running counter to a very important value in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want us to think about that. As disciples of Jesus, I believe we need to ask ourselves how our faith relates to our relationships with those who believe differently and live differently than we choose to. I wish I could have taken you all to Pakistan to be with the people of the Presbyterian Congregation of Taxila City. Reverend Wasim and Seema Seema's name is actually Cuckoo, and we're going to start calling her Cuckoo, because everybody else calls her Cuckoo. But Reverend Wasim and Cuckoo's church, I've never before been among such loving people as I was there. This congregation of um, about 800 people, it's a big church. And as you get to know this couple who, who led them, as you get to know their extended family, uh, you'll be able to see why their church was that way. They learned it. This church, they learned it by watching them. But something you may not know is that Kuku and Wasim, in that country where Christians are marginalized, Christians are marginalized and, yes, persecuted, even martyred for their faith, that they, this, this congregation, the Taxila congregation, reaches out and serves Muslims in areas where there is intense need. When following natural disasters in Pakistan, they did relief work in places that were unreached and forgotten. Intentionally following the teaching of the New Testament. Passages like Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. There's a lot of cursing going on these days. Many voices are saying, saying to us, be afraid. We need to ask ourselves, is this the right course? Is it? You know, the New Testament was written during a time of persecution. Do you, do, you, do you read there that we should have attitudes of fear and hatred? Nope. No, we read this. Do not repay anyone, anyone, evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, 
Never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. Your enemies. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So which course are we on? Are you willing to allow the Holy Spirit to change your course as he did Peter's? Are you willing to expand that vision as he did and allow God to change your heart and your attitude toward others? Peter was willing. He wasn't perfect. We read in Galatians 2 that later the Apostle Paul had to remind him of his course because he had forgotten part of it. So being off course isn't the end of the world. The main thing is whether you're willing to make corrections as the Holy Spirit leads and directs you. So whether you're, you're, it's your attitude about one person, whether it's all of us as a church, or whether it's our, our, our direction as this nation, our society, may the Holy Spirit direct me and you, and may we stay on course. The course of love, the course of service, and, and grace, and mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray.